You're listening to the Thesis for You podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a PhD student at New York University, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structured prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Jacob Andreas, who is currently an assistant professor at MIT, where he leads the Language and Intelligence Group. His research focuses on language as a communicative and computational tool, including directions such as learning from language, interpretation and explanation, and compositionality and generalization, all of which we touch on in today's discussion. His PhD thesis is titled Learning from Language, which he completed in 2018 at UC Berkeley. We discuss compositionality and structured representations, including Jacob's work on neural module networks and where it's evolved since. The intersection of RL and language, including specifying tasks or exploring with natural language, and translating a neural communication channel called Neuralese, and how this can lead to more interpretable machine learning models. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Thesis Review. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can contribute a dollar at buymeacoffee.com slash thesisreview. As always, there are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Jacob Andreas with Learning with Language on the Thesis Review. Yeah, so your, your thesis um, focuses on, on using language. Uh, so maybe to start, we could start with a kind of fun question. Do you have a favorite aspect of human language? Well, so I, I think as, as probably going to become clear from the discussion of uh, the contents of the thesis, uh, compositionality is a sort of fundamental uh, organizing principle or structuring principle for languages. Um, I think is the the thing that's been kind of the most common uh, thread through all of the research, and the fact that we have, um, you know, as they say, we can make infinite use of finite means. We have this like relatively simple set of uh, words and relatively small set of words, and we can somehow use those to, um, you know, basically plug any belief into the head of the people that we're talking to is a pretty remarkable thing. Yeah. So, like this this idea of compositionality. Like reading through your thesis, it, it seems like you thought a lot about things like, I, I don't know, like ideas from linguistics and really thought maybe about like the nature of language, maybe like going back to before the PhD, was this something you were always interested in or how did you get interested in these topics? Yeah, well, so for NLP broadly, um, you know, the real story is I think I had decided I wanted to do some kind of computer science research just because that was a thing that one should do in college. Um, I emailed everybody in the department who was doing anything sort of vaguely AI related. Um, and Kathy McEwen, uh, who was the sort of main NLP person at Columbia at the time, uh, happened to be the first person to write back. Um, and I guess that's really why I'm doing NLP. Although I think, you know, as I have, uh, stayed in the field and started to interact a little bit more with computer vision people and with robotics people. Um, I continue to find just like language problems for language problems sake, uh, 
much more interesting than in any of those other areas. So, um, you know, maybe it was meant to be, but I think I was also very lucky just to have an environment at Columbia where there was a ton of NLP research going on, a ton of different people working on it. Um, and I was able to get um, a number of different views of the field just from like people in the department in a way that I think set me up pretty well for, uh, for graduate school. Maybe looking back, like now that you know the outcome of, of what's in your thesis, would you have, like, did you know what you were going to work on going in or? Uh, definitely not. Well, so I remember, um, so I did my senior thesis with Mike Collins and I think I originally wanted to do something on unsupervised grammar induction. Um, and he basically said, go read Dan Klein's thesis and uh, come back and tell me if you still think there's like anything new or interesting to be done with grammar induction. Uh, and certainly there was, but I was not as a like junior in college prepared to do any of it. And so somehow we got onto uh, this idea of doing machine translation via logical representations of meaning, right? So in a sort of conventional machine translation system, uh, circa 2011, you, you know, built up some sort of phrase table that had, uh, you know, a bunch of like little chunks of English paired with little chunks of Arabic or little chunks of French or whatever. And you would learn some sort of statistical model for stitching these things together, um, just words to words. And nowadays we have neural machine translation systems, but it's the same deal, right? You have sort of words, words come in on one side, words come out on the other side. Um, and what I wanted to do or what I tried to do was instead to say, you know, what what languages have in common or what we're doing when we're uh, translating from one language to another is, you know, you look at the source sentence, you figure out the meaning of that sentence in some abstract language independent way, uh, and then you render that um, back down into your target language. Uh, this is a like super old view of the machine translation problem um, that, you know, had largely, largely been abandoned in NLP for decades at that point. Um, and with good reason, because it turned out it didn't work. Uh, so I built, uh, basically picked up a bunch of work that had been going on in semantic parsing in mapping from strings just to logical representations of meaning uh, and said, A, can we take one of these models and invert it? And then if we chain these things together, do you get a good machine translation system? Um, and it didn't work very well, but I think was what got me thinking about meaning uh, in a way that I think was fairly influ influential for uh, the course of the rest of my research. Having read your thesis, you, you, you can see kind of reflections of that. Um, just like this idea of having some intermediate structured representation. Mm -hmm. So I guess sometimes even the, um, the research that doesn't go so well can maybe still line you up for, for things to do. Yeah, very much so. Yes, then your thesis, it's, it's titled Learning from Language. And um, you start off uh, by saying sort of the goals are to make predictors that are compositional and language-like. And then there's kind of four different chapters, and, and hopefully we'll be able to go into at least some of them. Do you maybe want to just talk about that statement of like these two goals, so compositional and, and language-like? Sure. So, you know, I think maybe... Uh, not entirely appropriately for this podcast, but need to acknowledge that, you know, there's sort of two schools of thought about how you write a thesis in, uh, in computer science. And one is that you come up with some sort of beautiful, coherent story and you have a nice document that like stitches all of the pieces of your story together. Um, and another is that you 
take whatever your and most you know your end favorite papers from your PhD are, uh, you staple them together and you come up with a uh, an introduction post hoc. Um, and I definitely have the second kind of thesis, but um, <laughs> to the extent that there is a unifying theme, um, both to what's in there and to, uh, I think the problems that um, that I was mostly interested in in grad school. Uh, it is, I mean, it's really those two things, right? It's how do you, in language processing problems specifically, um, represent the meanings of sentences and represent the computational process by which we go from, you know, a, a sentence, a piece of natural language to whatever sort of belief or behavior or answer it is uh, that we want to produce from that sentence. Um, and then the other thing is in even more kind of general machine learning problems uh, that may or may not have anything to do with language as such, how do we take the insights from uh, from NLP and from building good models for NLP and use those to help us get um, human-like kinds of generalization on all of these other NLP problems as well, or all these other machine learning problems as well? Yeah, no, I, I think that's one purpose of, of this podcast, actually. Kind of go go back and forth between like just talking about like a paper in isolation, but then maybe maybe it is a chance to like zoom out and and uh, go into the introduction writing mode for a second and, and think about like yeah how it connects. So so then maybe we could go into the first section then on, on these module networks. So you had this these machine learning uh, sorry machine translation projects. Um, was module networks then the first? Uh, did this go in chronological order or um sort of? So this you know this. The whole like module net project came about halfway through my PhD, um, and before then, you know, I was sort of wandering around trying out a bunch of different things. But I think I knew fairly early on in my PhD that I wanted to do something with grounded language learning. So you know, it's nice to have these um, sort of abstract logical representations of sentence meaning, say, but for lots of tasks where we actually want to sort of use language to interact with computer systems. Um, the hard part of the problem is figuring out not how do you get from language to a logical form, but how do you get the logical form to translate into real behavior in the real world, right? So we had, at the time, um, you could ask questions about databases because you could just like, you know, map text to SQL and then execute the SQL. Or you could do instruction following in very highly structured environments where you had some sort of programming language already there. You just generated um, basically map from language to um, like programs to run on your robot, and then you ran the programs on the robot and whatever you wanted happened. Um, we didn't at the time have good tools for um, answering questions about things like images or videos or other unstructured representations of knowledge. And similarly, we didn't have tools for taking actions in maybe a less structured world where all you knew was how to do sort of primitive things like drive forward, turn to the right, uh, and, and things like that. Um, and so I actually started the like thing that's sort of the spiritual predecessor to the module nets project was an instruction following paper where I was basically trying to figure out if you could do instruction following without logical forms by just saying, I have my sentence and maybe I have some structured representation of the sentence in the form of a dependency parse. Can I like lay this dependency parse on top of the world uh, in some way that like every word lines up with the object that the word is describing or the feature of the object that the word is describing or the relationship between two objects that's being described. And is that enough to do, uh, to sort of build an effective um, 
discriminative instruction following model without uh, without anything that really looks like a logical form. And then, you know, that went reasonably well. And I, the, the next thing that I wanted to do was um, visual question answering. Um, and in, you know, one of these sort of perfect, like, confluence of timing and everything else, um, a big, a couple of big VQA data sets were actually in the process of getting put together by, uh, like, Debbie Parikh's group, uh, then at Virginia Tech. Uh, there, were, there was a postdoc at Berkeley, Marcus Rohrbach, who had done some very early work on neural network models for question answering and wanted to um, sort of follow up there. Um, and so all the pieces were sort of in place that I could say, uh, I want to do visual question answering. I want to do something that looks a little bit like uh, semantic parsing, because that's what I know how to do from NLP, having not done any of this neural net stuff before. Um, but I want to work with uh, vision data. And, you know, right as I wanted to start this project, the data became available and people at Berkeley with the relevant expertise uh, were there and interested in working on this project. Yeah. And then the, the idea itself is... Um... It is really nice, like conceptually, like, so I guess break down the language into these modular parts and then learn kind of the individual modules and then compose them together. Is that kind of the high level? I mean, yes and no. I think I had in my head at the outset of the project um, something much more specific than that, which was literally just like, can we, assuming I already have a good semantic parser, uh, can I learn um, implementations of the pieces of that semantic parser, um, on vision data. And, you know, it's worth pointing out that like, even with respect to the final model architecture that we came up with, a bunch of the pieces were already kind of in the air. Uh, Richard Zucker had been doing a bunch of stuff with, uh, like recursive models, uh, neural network models for syntax. Uh, Jay and Krishnamurthy had been done a bunch of sort of pre-neural stuff on, uh, learning implementations of visual primitives, um, uh, you know, just from sort of question image answer data. Um, and, you know, so I think what the real like core of what we were doing in the module and that's paper was that was new was just saying, look, these things are not ju just for sort of coming up with generic representations of sentences. They're actually really effective as models of meaning and you can learn them end to end rather than having to um, sort of independently try to train a bunch of classifiers implementing uh, meanings of different words, you know, and then from there, uh, it got generalized, you know, some by work from what we were doing at Berkeley, some by other people into a sort of general class of approaches to like doing compositional languagey things with neural nets. But, um, I don't think the vision was quite that, uh, that grand when I started out. So yeah, maybe we, we could talk about like what you did here and then where you've seen these go since since then. One thing I liked in the results you gave is you did talk about some of the limitations that like sometimes the the parse wouldn't line up exactly with like the maybe noisiness of the of the language. So yeah, like what what do you think about this um, necessity of kind of specifying a structure up front and it might not necessarily always line up with like the the language itself. Um, well, I guess it depends on what you mean to by line up with the language itself, right? So first of all, to talk concretely a little bit about how these models work, um, right? You have, uh, say we're talking about visual question answering, you have a sentence, you have a representation of the state of the world, say encoded as an image, you want to get from these two things to an answer. Um, and the sort of generic 
way in which you do that with a module network uh, is you have a bunch of little sort of fragments of neural nets, each of which knows how to do a primitive thing like recognizing a cat or taking in an object and computing the set of things that are above that object or taking a region of an image that you're attending to um, and mapping to, um, you know, uh, a label or an answer or something else. Um, and, you know, in some sense, figuring out the structure by which all of those modules are supposed to get stitched together into a computation, a like question-specific computation graph, um, is the project of formal semantics uh, as it's existed kind of in the modern era. How do we uh, look at a sentence, um, map that sentence onto a structured description of computation, uh, and then that's often where, uh, in the sort of formal semantics world, the problem ends. And we were saying, what, what if we go one step further and also, in addition to learning the form of that mapping, try to learn uh, actually what it means to recognize a cat or what it means to be above something. Um, and in, in particular, can we learn all of these things if all we ever get as supervision is questions, images, and answers? Um, and in the initial stage of the project, um, I, I think basically like it felt too hard to simultaneously learn how to predict these layouts and learn the implementations of all of these modules um, yeah, yeah. jointly. And so we went with a fairly rigid um, model in which basically these like very, very coarse module layouts, uh, much, much coarser than you'd get in like a real linguist semantic analysis of a sentence, uh, were derived in a rule-based way um, from an off-the-shelf dependency parser. And we were really just learning the like implementations of the semantic components of the model, just learning you know what it meant to be a dog. Um, and this didn't work because in many cases, as you know, as we know from decades of research in linguistics, uh, there isn't a trivial correspondence between um, a syntactic parse that you get of a sentence and the form of the computation that you want to do in order to answer that sentence. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think at the time that I did the version of that work that wound up in the thesis, um, that was kind of as much of the story as we had that like, yeah, you can get a reasonably good um, sort of provisional layout by just transforming a dependency parse. We know there's a bunch of mistakes uh, that are made in the layouts if you do that. And hopefully sometime in the future, we'll fix that. Um, and one of the things that's been really exciting for me, just looking at what's happened uh, after that work was published is how much better a job the rest of the community did at figuring out uh, how to solve that layout prediction problem. Um, so one of Trevor Darrell's students, Rong Hang Hu, who I did a bunch of work with at Berkeley, um, had some work on starting with those parser provided layouts and doing reinforcement learning to refine them a little bit. Um, and then really just in the last like two, three years, um, there's been a bunch more work from a couple of other groups that in my mind have just like at least in the case of question answering, solve that problem much more satisfactorily using a very different class of um, structure predictors. Uh, and so this is like the um, uh, neurosymbolic reasoning paper from Josh Tenenbaum's group with uh, Jiajun Mao and or Jiajun Mao and Jiajun Wu. Um, a very recent paper from Ben Bogin at uh, Tel Aviv University. Um, some work uh, by Nitish Gupta that came out of Allen AI. They basically use like a very, very different class of predictors that look more like conventional chart parsers and less like seek-to-seek -seek models for uh, for predicting those layouts. 
I, like, I think the problem itself is, is interesting as a kind of scientific endeavor in and of itself. But like, if you were to compare maybe like the performance benefits of this versus end to end, do these show some kind of benefits in terms of like, I don't know, compositionality or um, reusability of these modules or something? Or... Yeah. Um, no, that's a great question. And I, one of the things that I think we discovered very quickly in the like big rush on the first VQA leaderboard uh, is that in the sort of normal like IID train and test condition, uh, all these nice li- richly structured models don't actually buy you much or anything in the way of performance and that, you know, the um, sufficiently big fixed structure models um, are actually able to do a much better job of answering some of these complicated questions than I certainly would have expected going into this project. Um, And then, you know, the question has been, well, does this buy you something in the way of interpretability or generalization? And I think on both of those points, the answer is yes. Um, There uh, was a bunch of cool work that uh, Dima Badanao did on like really specifically probing um, ways in which you get out of distribution uh, compositional generalization to uh, more complicated questions that you've seen before or questions that you involve, you know, combinations of pieces that you've never seen combined before and things like that. Um, and in those settings, these kinds of explicit uh, modular architectures still, um, I wouldn't say are essential, but are uh, generalized much more effectively than, uh, than anything else that we know how to build right now. I see. Yeah, I like the, the title of this one section was um, Deep Networks as Functional Programs. So where do you say we're at right now? Like, um, I, I guess you could think of learning the language itself uh, or learning the primitives of a language or learning the, the rules for combining primitives or like learning how to use the language. Um, if you're following that analogy, I think maybe like what you showed in the thesis is that if you have primitives and rules for combining them. So if you have a parse, then you can get a network to kind of learn to use that that structure in a sense. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, so two pieces there. First of all, going back to what you were saying before about um, this as a scientific problem, you know, one of the really interesting things, uh, the, the like, maybe the first hard problem that you run into in your like intro semantics class uh, as an undergrad is the fact that the sort of conventional analysis you want to give of how a phrase like red ball in this clever data set works uh, is you have some predicate that knows how to identify red things. You have some predicate that knows how to know how to identify balls. Uh, and the set of red balls is just the intersection of the set of red things uh, and the set of balls. Um, but uh, there are a number of famous examples of cases where language doesn't work like this at all, right? Where uh, somebody with red hair uh, has hair that is not actually red. Uh, a fake mm-hmm. gun is not a gun. Um, and <laughs> so you can't actually, uh, without building up much more complicated representations of the meanings of individual words, um, give the kinds of simplistic analyses that at least we were relying on in the um in the original NMN papers. Uh, and one question then is like, to the extent that you want to decompose um, the, the meaning of a question uh, or the computation 
by which you answer a question into a bunch of little modular pieces. Like how small do you actually need to get? And can we say, you know what, the neural net is like really good at recognizing noun phrases and anything below the level of a noun phrase, the distinction between red hair and a red ball is not actually something that we need to uh, break down explicitly inside one of our models, but maybe some of these higher level reasoning phenomena about relationships among objects or, you know, participant, participation in verbs, uh, those things do matter. Um, and I think as a scientific question, I would still love to just like really understand what, uh, you know, to the extent that we have a good, a pretty good idea of like what's hard for uh, linguists when trying to come up with these kinds of analyses and what bits are like easy to treat as atomic and what bits are not, uh, to what extent mm -hmm. does, uh, the behavior of these module nets, once you're in a setting where you can really induce the structures from scratch and pick whatever structure you want, um, to what extent do those things agree or disagree? And are there things that are like, you know, easy for formal semanticists and hard for, uh, neural nets or vice versa? Um, Oh, the other thing that I wanted to say on the functional programs point is that, like, since writing that, one of the things that has, like, sat on my to-do list literally for years is can we use these models, like, actually as models of programming language data and build um, basically abstract interpreters that, like, predict what the output of a program is going to be in some fuzzy, noisy, but relatively cheap way just by yeah, yeah. some... Uh, you know, running some modular comp uh, computation that respects the structure of the program. Um, and I never really had the like PL or program synthesis chops to do that. But um, now that I'm at MIT, there are a bunch of people who do. And uh, so I'm working with like some of uh, Armando Solar's Lozama students on, um, uh, on like actually applying these kinds of module net models to functional programs. And that's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, that, that's really cool. Yeah. I was, I started to think about like reflect on this a bit more and like one thing I came to is is recursion really difficult for neural networks in functional programming recursion is is I guess used a lot I don't know if that's something that is looked into as much recursive computations performed by by networks yeah well so there's a, there's a couple ways of looking at that one is you know again looking at language data and when you have complicated sentences with like lots of sentence embedding or lot, lots of center embedding or really deep trees um, do say RNN language models um, degrade in their ability to handle those sentences faster than uh, say people do. And there's been a bunch of work there from uh, the psycholinguistics community like Roger Levy, Tal Linzen. Um, another is just that, yeah, if I have sort of generic um, like list processing or other little problems like that, that I want to solve. Um, how well do, um, do these module net type architectures do and how well do just like big blobs of neural computation do. Um, and you know, that there's like a bunch of individual anecdotes, but I don't think we actually have a, uh, a like comprehensive empirical picture. I see. Okay. But yeah, I guess some people have started to look into these things. Or... Yeah, I mean, certainly within within NLP and specifically in the context of language modeling. Um, and there's, you know, again, to the extent that we have evidence, it's that um, tree-structured RNN models um, of the, like, recursive neural net, RNN grammar uh, style um, 
are more robust to language processing tasks that involve a lot of recursion. Yeah, 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 I see. I mean, maybe this is like isomorphic to the language processing task, but if you have a recursive program, so if we're talking about like the functional modeling the language, and it required like computing some intermediate state on each functional call, yeah. like whether that's something that's tough for, for networks. I mean, fundamentally, anytime you have a circuit of fixed depth, uh, you are going to be able to construct um, inputs that are too complicated for that circuit to process. Uh, and so the question is, are there, you know, do you need some sort of explicit modular programming structure or is it enough to say, well, I'm going to process my input with an LSTM and then I'm just going to let the LSTM like idle for however many time steps it needs until it thinks it's done and then it can output its answer after that. So I think the tension there is between um, models with an explicit recursion operation and like RNNs with adaptive computation time, but no additional structure. Right, right, right. I see. Um, so maybe to go on to the, these policy sketches, I, I guess like one, one thing to maybe start on is that this now brings in reinforcement learning or policy learning. So how did you kind of get interested in, in that? I, I found this to be a, a nice perspective of blending this both language and, and kind of policy learning. Yeah. You know, and I think that really comes back to the, like my original interest in instruction following problems. So now we have, uh, you know, I guess to the extent that those are kind of the two, the two problems that have always like been really useful for me, just like sharpening my intuition about uh, what models can do and can't do right now, uh, instruction following and question answering. And uh, so, you know, I talked a little bit about how the instruction following project led into the uh, module nets project for question answering. Uh, and then the question is, now that we have the suite of tools, can we go back and apply them to things that look a little bit like um, instruction following again? Uh, and with the policy sketches paper, it is important to uh, be very clear that we're not talking about natural language here. We're talking about, you know, sort of synthetic, highly structured, highly simplified descriptions of plans, um, but um, language-like insofar as you just get like a sequence of tokens without grounding. Every listener should, should read the, the policy sketch paper as well as your thesis, but maybe for people who, aren't, who haven't heard of this before, like what is a policy sketch? Right. So, you know, in some sense, the idea there was a pretty natural translation of the like module nets for question answering idea into RL. So, you know, the question, like we said, the question in the NMN paper, or the original NMN paper was, um, if somebody gives me the fixed form of a computation, uh, but not how any of the individual pieces uh, should be implemented for a bunch of different problems, can I train jointly with all of these computation structures to uncover the implementation of the individual pieces? Um, and in the policy sketches paper, we're doing the same thing for RL problems. So some, you know, it, it, the setting is basically if I have 10 different environments in which I want to do reinforcement learning, and I know that the form of the optimal policy in each of those environments uh, is related in some structured way. And so the running example in the paper um, is I'm in some Minecraft type world. And, you know, one task that I want to complete is 
building a workbench. And another task that I want to complete is building an axe. And they both involve first cutting down a tree, picking up the wood, and then doing something, you know, some different subtask with the wood that results. Um, can I do something clever uh, with multitask RL to exploit the fact that, a, uh, you know, the prefix of the plan that you want to execute in both of those ta tasks is exactly the same. Um, and so in the policy sketches paper, we were saying, um, suppose now that somebody um, tells us for each of this ta these tasks, here is the sequence of high level steps that you need to follow. To build a workbench, you must first cut down a tree and then build a workbench. And to possess an axe, you must fir first cut down a tree and then build an axe. Um, mm -hmm. Can you use that to build sort of structured representations of policies that tie their parameters together in the same way that like neural modules tie their parameters together in question answering? Um, and does this actually speed up RL? Um, and, you know, I think the, the sort of literature that this is most closely related to is work on um, options policies uh, from uh, like Rich Sutton and Dana Precup, which are basically trying to answer a harder version of that question, which is uh, if I know there's a bunch of related pieces, but I don't actually know how they're related across different tasks, can I still recover shared implementations of the pieces? Um, and so the policy sketches paper is basically saying, look, uh, here's a little bit of extra supervision we can collect that's super easy to get. Um, is this enough to actually substantially change the outlook for, uh, for a, a, a multitask reinforcement learning problem? Yeah, I see. And then, so in this case, like you mentioned that the, the language was, uh, I guess, like template based. Um, is there still a benefit? Like, like what, what are the benefits in this case to using the language? Is it still that you can kind of do the slot filling. So like build an ax versus building a house. And then there's some commonality in the build part or. Yeah. So I, I mean, for the plan representations that we were, the, the sketch representations that we were using in the policy sketches paper, there wasn't even that much structure. Um, it oh, was really just, I have a sequence of subtasks. The subtasks have names. Uh, the names tell you which tasks share subtasks. Um, and so the point there is just that, um, this is an extremely simple kind of annotation um, to gather in addition to whatever sort of work you were building, doing to build your reinforcement learning agent in the first place. So if I can, you know, spend three weeks tuning hyperparameters and it takes me five minutes to write down a text file that contains a little bit of information, extra information about the structure of my problems, um, yeah, yeah. what can I actually do with the kind of information that I can write down in five minutes in a text file? Um, right. I see. And that, and that's really what the policy sketches paper was about. Uh, and the answer to that question was, well, you do with it the same thing that you did in the module nets paper, uh, use it to tie parameters. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like for each different instruction, you would get a different like sub policy. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking of like this, this Montezuma's revenge game. That's yeah. really difficult for just non-hierarchical RL. And there, I, I just want to like yell at the policy, like go to the door. <laughs> so that's yeah. be a way of doing that. Exactly. Um, yeah. And what's tricky about Montezuma's revenge is that the, at least the standard way in which people uh, evaluate that, you don't have the luxury of, um, you know, a collection of different environments of varying difficulty uh, for uh, telling you what your reusable pieces are. But then again, neither, uh, you know, the evidence that people use to figure out how to 
beat Montezuma's revenge probably looks more like uh, what we have in the policy sketches paper than uh, what you get when you're trying to beat Montezuma's revenge from scratch. Maybe maybe like looking ahead or, or looking at more broadly. So if you start with these kind of um, preset task specifications, then maybe you go to some synthetic uh, language with like some slot filling and then like full language instructions. How difficult do you think each one of those steps is? And do you think it would be even useful to kind of aim for that as a goal where we we use just free natural language to um, help improve reinforcement learning? Yeah, well, and hopefully we'll have time to talk about that a little bit in the context of the learning with latent language uh, chapter as well. But no, I mean, I think that's very much the goal. And, um, you know, in terms of can we get like a little bit more structure in these annotations without going all the way up to language and exploit, you know, so I, I guess the the important high level thing in the policy sketches paper is that you have only temporal structure and nothing else. You have sequences of subtasks and nothing about how the internal structure of those subtasks is related. Um, it's very natural to say, well, at least we have like functions and arguments and those things are worth explicitly decomposing. Um, Jin Hyuk Oh had a bunch of work uh, sort of concurrently with uh, the policy sketches paper, um, looking at those kinds of models. Um, yeah, and then from there, it's actually not so much of a jump to can we um, uh, can we use sort of full natural language descriptions as uh, specifications of the kinds of high level actions that a policy. Uh, a sort of controller policy can deploy. Um, and there, uh, again, there's been a bunch of recent work that I'm super excited about. Um, a paper from some folks at Facebook uh, where they actually had a, uh, like a real-time strategy game and they got people to describe uh, in terms of high-level actions how they were playing this real-time strategy game and showed that doing imitation learning sort of hierarchically with a policy that can first generate a natural language description of its next action and then execute that natural language description uh, works a lot better than uh, just doing imitation learning at the low level. Uh, we are hopefully soon going to have uh, some follow-up work to that uh, coming out. Uh, and then also uh, work from some folks at Google Brain who are using, um, you know, not exactly natural language, but like language parameterized um, sub-goals. Yeah, so, so it does seem like a good direction forward. Yeah, so maybe we can, uh, you already mentioned like the latent descriptions. Was that um, kind of a follow on work to, to policy sketches or it kind of looks similar in, in the sense, but maybe it's just in retrospect. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, well, it grew directly out of the policy sketches project in that. So in the policy sketches paper, there's a bunch of work or there's a bunch of experiments showing that if you have these annotations at training time, they let you just like get to max performance on your um, training distribution of tasks faster compared to baselines. Uh, the more interesting set of experiments in that paper said, if you train a policy with this extra scaffolding provided by language, uh, it turns out that it is also uh, useful for fast adaptation to new tasks, even when you no longer have access to those structured annotations. So somehow the language gives me a representation of a policy that's just like better as a policy and generalizes better, even if I don't get to train it conditionally uh, on future held up tasks. And so in the learning with latent language paper, um, uh, I should say the latent descriptions chapter of my thesis, um, the question is, is that a more general picture? Basically, can I, 
if I have sort of generically a machine learning problem with a bunch of inputs and outputs and natural language descriptions of the decision rule, can I turn that into a recipe for learning more efficiently from input-output pairs on tasks that I've never seen before? And then here you actually started with, it seems like one of these meta-learning type setups. So you're actually looking at like image classification first, where you have a few examples of these these different shapes that you have to uh, say, like, what is the relationship between like the diamonds and the circle or something like that, right? Right. And so, the, I mean, the real thesis uh, in that part of the thesis is that language learning is a kind of meta learning. Um, and this is a point that has, you know, I think been made in a uh, very different form by all the recent work that's been going on with large scale language model training. Um, but that, you know, even sort of if you set aside giant pre-training and you just say, I have some collection of tasks, I have natural language descriptions of those tasks. If you can learn to associate um, tasks with their descriptions, then that gives you a much nicer uh, hypothesis space for figuring out what to do next. And that when uh, somebody comes to you with a new training set and says, here's a bunch of input output pairs, uh, figure out what the decision rule is and generalize that decision rule to uh, to new input output pairs. You now have, you know, literally a language for uh, describing decision rules uh, that's sort of structured and that you can put priors on in easy ways uh, without actually requiring you to pre-commit to some more highly structured hypothesis class like logical rules or decision trees or something like that. Yeah, like you were talking about this, the language being a parameter space. So in this case, what, was it again like fixed uh, fixed sentences and then choosing the parameter was like choosing one of those sentences or? Yeah, well, so for, you know, there's a bunch of different models in that paper, but the general recipe is when I see a new task specified with some amount of training data, I'm going to try to identify literally a natural language description um, of the rule that generates my X's or that transforms my X's into my Y's. Um, and then I will interpret that natural language description with respect to some sort of, you know, relatively unstructured language understanding model, right? So if I'm trying to do few shot image classification, um, I'm gonna, uh, look at my, you know, collection of images of birds, I'm going to say, can I come up with a caption that's a good caption for all of these images of birds? And then when somebody comes to me with a new image, uh, I just need to ask, well, is this a good caption for this other image? And if so, it probably belongs to the same class as all of my training data. Um, and what's nice about this is that it becomes much harder to overfit in certain ways. That if I know at the end of the day, my like class representation has to be bottlenecked by a language understanding model, it's going to be very hard for me to find the um, sort of class description that says, oh, you know, by chance, all five of these training images, like the third pixel from the top left corner is a particular shade of black. And so that's probably what they all have in common. And so language tells you something about the kinds of features that people find useful for, um, for specifying machine learning for our problems, for describing meaningful categories and meaningful transformations. And if you can tap into that, then you can generalize in, in more human-like ways. Yeah, I see. So yeah, potentially the, the language bottleneck can help uh, potentially like reduce these spurious 
correlations that the model picks up on exactly uh, as well as well and then that would help with generalization yeah and then in terms of um policy learning and reinforcement learning you did apply this idea yeah i mean honestly the reinforcement learning experiments in that paper are kind of a gross hack and i look forward to being able to point to something better to replace them with but the story there in reinforcement learning right is that um it's not like the form of the experience that you get is here's an example of the agent going to its goal figure out what it was trying to do and then do it again because if that were the case you could just memorize the policy and execute it over um and instead in reinforcement learning settings you're dropped down in some environment you have no idea what it is that you're supposed to be doing um and lacking any sort of information about the structure of possible goals all you can hope to do is take random sequences of actions until you start getting reward. And so again, if you have an instruction following model, um, then what you can do is say, okay, let me think about the kinds of instructions that people give in environments that look like this. Uh, and let me basically start like hallucinating random instructions for myself to follow, following them, and then seeing what happens. Uh, and the hope there is that in the same way that in these supervised problems, uh, language gives you some sort of structured um, space in which to uh, represent descriptions of classifiers or generative models. In RL, language uh, structures your exploration strategy. And you can say, I'm going to sample something that sounds like a meaningful goal that somebody might want to achieve and see if that's actually what I'm supposed to be doing in this environment. Uh, now, where it's an ugly hack is that the, the environments we were looking at in there are... Um, or rather the goal spaces were sufficiently simple that you could hope to like randomly stumble onto the right goal just by guessing a few different instructions, um, you know, on the order of hundreds to thousands. Uh, for realistic environments, that is certainly not going to be the case. Uh, and then, like we were talking about before, you really want language as some intermediate level of structure instead, where you can say, let me guess a random high level action uh, that'll maybe get closer to the goal without having to literally um, stumble into a complete description of the plan that I'm supposed to be executing. Right. Right. I see. But yeah, it was, it was definitely, um, it was definitely like interesting and, and thought provoking. I started thinking about like, um, I don't know, maybe are people looking into how to leverage all these advances in the quality of uh, pre-trained language models? Uh, <laughs> I don't know what the solution would look like, but it seems like some, Somehow we should be able to leverage the like quote unquote knowledge that they have for structuring exploration and, and different policies. You, you might additionally need a multimodal system that could take in say images and also produce text. So maybe now it's getting a bit harder. But <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I mean those those in my mind are like the problems next. So I would bet good money that there are going to be like. 10 papers in the next year saying we took GPT-3 and we used it to like place a distribution over natural language descriptions of high level action sequences. And then we like manually grounded those out in low level plans. And now we can generalize. Um, and that's like super cool. That's really, if that turns out to be true, is going to be a pretty remarkable thing uh, that we can get information out of language models uh, and use it to guide uh, real world behavior. But like you said, the more interesting question is, uh, how do you actually learn those groundings? And if I have sort of really rich representations of plans, uh, but only natural language descriptions of plans, and on the other hand, 
um, a bunch of information about like what the world looks like, but very little language data describing the relation or very little data describing the relationship between language and goals or language and actions. How do we put those things together in such a way that, um, uh, that we can really sort of take whatever knowledge or priors or whatever are, are captured in, uh, in these big language models and learn to ground them out. Uh, yeah, 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 it'll be, it'll be interesting. And, um, I think people should cite, should cite this point of the podcast where you said that. So if they come, if, if they do these ideas with GPT-3. <laughs> well, I, I, I know from conversations with colleagues that, uh, <laughs> this podcast is not going to be the first place that most people are going to be. <laughs> yeah, so. I think yeah. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess while we're here and, and since you didn't mention the, the meta learning, um, what do you think of like this, this um, apparent ability for GPT-3 to do this few shot learning? Like, do you have any thoughts on it? Like, was it surprising the results that have at least been made public or? Um, so I guess it sort of depends on what you mean by, um, uh, by meta learning and what it means to be a task. And I think, you know, on one hand, the fact that, um, we have a bunch of NLP problems that can be coerced into a format that's, um, you know, easy for one of these language models to ingest and formulaic enough that you can then extrapolate those predictions to other inputs um, is like really cool, but um, not all that surprising. And I think that's actually the the thing that people were getting most excited about in that paper is just that it like empirically does well on uh, NLP tasks expressed in this way. Um, the more interesting thing for me is this like category of tasks where it's actually not all that good, but um, doing something non-trivial, these like adding numbers together. Um, Melanie Mitchell had a whole long blog post about a bunch of analogical reasoning tasks um, where, you know, you just get like sequences of letters and you have to transform them into sequences of other letters. And, you know, it works like half the time. But um, the idea that we can maybe acquire slightly more abstract descriptions of you know, what it means to like form a rule on the basis of uh, a small amount of data. That seems like the most exciting thing and figuring out how to um, make, you know, make that kind of behavior uh, robust and predictable and more than 50% accurate um, is, is the really important thing. And I think where it ties into this uh, latent descriptions work is that that is the kind of uh, structure more even than, um, you know, the fact that birds have heads that we want to be able to import into other machine learning problems, right? If there's something generic about like, right, right. these are the kinds of like abstractly decision rules that are plausible or computational processes that are useful for solving real world tasks, um, figuring out how to sort of extract that from these language models and use it to, um, uh, to do image classification and do reinforcement learning um, seems really exciting to me. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think this was a good discussion on reinforcement learning. Maybe we can move to the um, the neuralese section. This was another interesting interesting section on sort of um, interpretability, but then also like emergent 
communication. Yeah, so how did you get interested in, in this problem? Um, so the history here is that um, Saina Sukhbatar had a paper at NIRIPS, uh, I guess a year or two before uh, I did all of this work, uh, showing that you could learn these, basically set up a multi-agent system that was just structured like an RNN with a weird sparse connectivity pattern um, and learn uh, communication policies, basically have each agent, you know, just send some vector valued message to other agents that somehow was able to communicate um, what that agent was about to do in the future. And I think this was in the context of like, um, traffic routing problems where you have to avoid running into people and you're trying to cross an intersection. Um, and there was a cool um, figure in there somewhere where, you, you know, he said, look, you can even like take these vector messages that are getting sent. There are basically three clusters. It looks like one of the clusters means stop, one of the clusters means go, and one of the clusters means something else. Um, and that got me thinking, um, basically whether we could a automate that process of analysis and b generalize it to spaces of representations where uh the information content that you need to communicate was a lot more complicated than just like one of i'm stopping i'm going or whatever the other thing was um and 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 then you're talking in the context of these multi-agent systems about a translation problem um so, you know, and this comes back actually to what we were talking about, about my like undergrad thesis is, okay, uh, how do we do machine translation? You go from your source language into a language independent representation of meaning and then into a target language. Um, and, you know, in normal machine translation among human languages, we're able to bypass that middle step because we can get paired uh paired data from human language. You know, we can get Canadian parliamentary proceedings that have like sentence for sentence, the same English and French sentence. Um, but now I have this like alien computational device uh, that's sending messages in a language that I don't speak. And I'm never going to get parallel data because uh, nobody already speaks the language being spoken by, um, by this learned model and English. Uh, and so then how do you do machine translation if you don't have access to parallel data, but you do have access to something about the world and something about the meaning that these agents might be trying to communicate. Yeah, so so I guess in this case, you don't have the paired data and you wanna go from these uh, just vector valued communication streams to human language. Here, I guess you use the common kind of grounding of the environment that both the human and the uh, non-human agent are in. Because I guess you, you have to have something in common at, at some point, right? Right. And so, you know, and this coming back to talking about semantics gets at, uh, you know, one of the sort of really deep, uh, deep insights that we get from the linguist, which is uh, how do you represent the meaning of a sentence? Uh, well, you represent it as, uh, you know, in some sense, the set of worlds about which that sentence is true. Um, and, you know, what it means for a sentence to be true in a world and whether you sort of take that from the perspective of um, the person who's producing the sentence or a person who's reading the sentence sort of divorced from any kind of context. Uh, those are complicated questions that uh, we didn't really get into in this work. Um, but there is this kind of abstract insight that if I can map a sentence to basically a distribution over world states uh, that that sentence correctly describes, that distribution over world states 
is a good representation of the meaning of the message, right? When I tell you, um, you know, I'm in the kitchen, uh, basically think of that as I want you to take whatever distribution over ways in which the world might be right now and intersect it with the set of worlds in which I am in the kitchen. Um, and that turns out to be something that you can, you know, you can construct representations of those distributions with learned models by just looking at people saying things about their current states. Uh, and now you have an interlingua in the form of, uh, of these distributions. I guess you like come up with this um, Bayesian interpretation and then you're able to drive this formula that allows you to, I guess, um, come up with a quantity for evaluating like the, is it the quality of a, of a translation and you search you know, using that value that you derive? Yeah, essentially. I mean, you know, and think of that as just saying like, I don't know if I have, um, what's the right example? So I think it's the case that in Russian, there are two different words uh, for blue, uh, one of which corresponds to what we in English would call light blue and one of which corresponds to what we in English would call dark blue. Um, and so if you say, have a, a Russian sentence that says like, I am holding a blue, uh, uh, a light blue ball and suppose... I guess this is where it gets a little bit artificial. Suppose for a minute that we're speaking a version of English that doesn't have the word light. We just have the word blue. Um, mm -hmm. So the question is, how can I translate this, in some sense, untranslatable uh, Russian sentence, uh, which is talking about a color with a level of specificity that's not available to me in my English sentence? Well, I say, what's the distribution over... Um, states that this Russian sentence is picking out, you know, imagine all of the different colors that I would describe as this light blue color, and then think of, uh, you know, for an English sentence, like I'm holding a blue ball, what's the set of states that that picks out versus I'm holding a red ball, what's the set of states that, that picks out? And the point is that even if uh, none of your state distributions are exactly the same as the one uh, you're trying to translate, I'm holding a blue ball, gets you closer even in like state space than I'm holding a red ball. Yeah. That, yeah. That's the best translation you can hope to come up with. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Yeah. And then you also like showed some, some nice formal properties. And um, I, I think you mentioned applying this to interpreting models and it, and it did seem like when I was reading through this, it seemed like, it seems like a more general idea that you have like two, two languages and then some, some grounding. Yeah. And you could possibly apply this in other places. Did you kind of follow up on that or is this something you still think about? Yes, very much so. So, you know, the insight there is that if, you know, we originally phrased this in terms of multi-agent communication that I have, you know, agent one, it generates some sort of neural network representation of a message. Agent two picks that up and decodes it into a behavior. Um, if you take any deep network of your choosing and you slice it in half, you can suddenly think of this as being some sort of communication game being played between the first half of the network and the second half of the network, where the message that the first half sends to the second half is just the representation at the layer where you slice the network. And so you can take oh, the same huh. insight and say, okay, I have a, um, uh, say some sort of hidden representation inside a neural net, can I map that back onto the set of all of the possible inputs that I might have shown to my network uh, mm -hmm. 
that would have produced a representation that looks like this, right? So if I'm in something like uh, an image classifier and the last layer of my image classifier, you know, basically makes all cat look cat images look the same and makes all dog images look the same. Uh, I hope to be able to say, okay, here's a representation. I don't actually know which input produced this representation, but it could have been any of these input pictures of cats. Um, mm -hmm. And once you have that, once you have a function for getting you from a representation in a deep network back onto the distribution over inputs that might have produced that representation, then to explain the representation, all you have to do is say, okay, and what's a good caption for all of these inputs? Um, mm. I see. So, so the, 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 sorry, so, so the human annotation in this case would be um, just having human descriptions of inputs. Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, and so one thing that's really cool about this is around the time, I guess even a little bit earlier than when we were doing this work, um, David Bao uh, and Antonio Taralba and a bunch of other people at MIT uh, came up via very different justification with basically the same model. Uh, they were doing this in the in context of um, individual neurons rather than entire representations in deep networks, but saying, you know, let me find like the jth unit in layer I of my network. Give me all of the inputs that cause this unit to turn on. And then let me see if I can find a good like one word description of what that unit does. And this is a paper called Net Dissect. And there's been a bunch of follow-ups on GANs and various other kinds of models. Um, and it's really the same uh, same procedure as we're doing in the Neuralese paper, at least the same intuition, right? That the, the way I want to represent uh, the meaning of a hidden representation or even of a single hidden feature is uh, as the set of uh, model inputs that cause that feature or that representation to activate. Um, and so something that uh, we, uh, I have been following up on in my first year, uh, with a bunch of students at MIT is saying, okay, can we like scale these procedures up to much more complicated forms of language? So we have some, uh, a paper up on archive that's by me and Jesse Mu, uh, who's a grad student at Stanford, uh, showing that you can assign not just like single concept labels to neurons, but um, relatively complex logical structures. You can use the same technique to basically find evidence of, you know, neurons that recognize like the disjunction of castles and operating rooms and various other weird things. Um, and some work that's still like in intermediate stages right now, uh, trying to find not just logical representations of these neurons, but actually go through a network and say, can we explain, um, you know, unit by unit in natural language, what every neuron is doing automatically. Um, oh, well. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know if it will work. And I think one of the things that we learned from the Neurley's uh, work is that it's very easy to find examples of representations or of features in these models where there is no good translation. And all you can say mm -hmm. is that, like, this is doing something weird and I don't have a good approximation to it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's an empirical question. Um, to what extent that's true of uh, of the larger scale models that uh, that we're starting to analyze now. Yeah, I see. I see. But you know, in some ways, this is the like piece of the thesis that I've spent the most time uh, following up on in, in in my first year at MIT. Oh, okay, cool, cool. Um, so yeah, initially when I was reading this section, uh, I thought maybe the 
core motivation was about the emergence, emergent communication. Would you say that it was more actually about the interpretability? Um, well, I guess both are interesting things. Yeah. So we definitely started out as the, can we just understand what's going on in the emergent communication, this particular class of, uh, of models for emergent communication. Um, I don't personally find at least the kinds of models that we were looking at, uh, multi-agent models that we were looking at in that paper, all that interesting in their own right. They're like not great as, for example, models of human, human language evolution or human language emergence. And there are much more sophisticated things who, you know, people for whom this is their full-time job uh, actually do when building computational models of, uh, of language emergence. Um, but they were fun to analyze. And then it turned out, as you pointed out, uh, that the analysis tool was much more general uh, and there's a sort of nice path that leads from there to um, things that you can apply to just like generic image classifiers, generative models, machine translation systems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's really cool. That, that's an interesting path. Um, maybe since I, I think you're the first person in the podcast to to discuss this interpretability, what are I, I guess you mentioned like being able to describe neurons in in words. Um, do you have like things in mind that you want to achieve in terms of interpretability? Like what would be some good outcomes? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, one thing I should say is that I'm uh, relatively new to this subfield and I'm sure there will people be people who have, uh, you know, better thought under better thought out understandings than me, but you know, what feels to me like, uh, it has been most missing until relatively recently is um, just like really solid human studies under real evaluation, like the, the kinds of evaluation conditions that represent the ways in which tools for interpretable ML are likely to be used in the real world. Um, right. There's a whole genre of work that is either um, primarily focused on uh, sort of articulating a like formal relationship between the explanation and the underlying model without worrying about whether the explanations are actually useful to anybody. Uh, and then another genre of work uh, in which this Neuralese paper is included uh, that comes up with kind of hokey evaluations that don't really look at um, whether this is a tool that somebody would use for like deciding whether to trust the output of a model or deciding whether a model is safe to deploy in the real world or not. Um, and this is something that's starting to change. There's been a bunch of great work from uh, Jennifer Wortman Vaughn's group at Microsoft uh, in the last little while um, doing much better uh, human evaluations. But, you know, I think that's, that's really the most important thing. And especially with regard to these... Um, natural language evaluations in contrast to, well, especially natural language evaluations where some part of the natural language explanations, where some part of the explanation is itself being generated by a learned model, like in these Neuralese papers, it's very, you know, the sort of most common uh, complaint is if it's neural nets all the way down, how, why should I trust this explanation in the first place if the explanation is itself being generated by some right, right. chunk of neural net that you're not trying to explain? Um, and I think the only way in which one can really hope to um, respond to that criticism is by saying uh, it works empirically, it helps people, 
on some reasonably well-constructed like distribution over human in the loop tasks. Um, I don't think we're quite there yet, although uh, Jesse's paper has a bunch of cool like examples of specific phenomena and like adversarial attacks that we were able to construct by looking at the explanations generated by this model. Um, but yeah, I think the, the, the most important thing is just making that literature about um, people and about human evaluations. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah, so I, I guess if I understood, like, e even if you have this black box model that's producing the interpretations, you can uh, set up some kind of human in the loop task so that you could at least evaluate those empirically somehow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and for some applications that may be enough. And for some applications, you also want some kinds of formal guarantees. Uh, those you are never going to get from, um, from most of the kinds of natural language explanations that we're talking about. But I think in many cases, you actually do want to trade off um, those kinds of guarantees for like real world usability. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, so, so this has been really interesting. So we actually got through all four, all four of the sections. Um, I guess throughout you've mentioned some, uh, some recent directions that you're working on, especially around like extending this neuralese. Yeah. Are there any other directions that you maybe like branched off from your PhD work or? Yeah, no, well, so I think the other big thing that's been a theme for us in the last year, um, you know, in the original, module in that paper, um, you know, we had our VQA numbers and we were like for a beautiful fleeting moment at the top of the VQA leaderboard. But like, in my mind, the most experiment, most important experiment in that paper was one where we showed that you could train on only simple questions and then evaluate on only hard questions. This was in the context of this toy shapes data set. Um, but as long as you had a parser that would give you the right network layout for your hard questions, suddenly you could do, you know, sort of grounded question answering about questions uh, more complicated than anything that you'd ever seen groundings for. Um, and so the real, like, lesson from the module network is that that class of models is a way to transform generalization about syntax into generalization about whatever other interpretation you are producing. Um, and so the natural next question is, how do you get generalization about syntax? Um, and, you know, there's been a bunch of work. Uh, something that I've been sort of fixated on is this, like, stupid, infuriating toy data set from uh, Brendan Lake and colleagues at, uh, at NYU uh, called the SCAN data set that's just this, like, little, little data set of... Uh, um, instruction following problems that you can beat with the simplest rule-based model in the world, um, but that are very hard for um, uh, neural sequence-to-sequence -sequence models. Um, and more generally, I think, you know, we inherit again from linguists pretty strong intuitions about the kinds of generalizations that people are able to make on the basis of relatively limited amounts of language data, even in new languages or made up languages. Um, and that there are certain kinds of quote unquote compositional generalizations uh, that are like more or less universal and are uncontroversially things that we want our neural models to do. And we just don't know how to bake them in. 
uh, and you don't get them from RNNs for free. You don't get them even from like enormous amounts of pre-training as far as we can tell. Um, so how do we get compositional generalization just about like sequence data in a way that would then let us do all of the other things that we want to do with, uh, with module nets and everything else. So, you know, I think the other big theme or the other big piece of my research in the last year has been thinking about, um, if we set aside all of these like special structured, fancy neural architectures for a second, how do we get more natural and more compositional generalization in just like vanilla RNN or transformer models? Do you have like a, a go-to example that comes to mind for where the neural model would fail? Like um, yeah, well, so like in this, uh, there's so many examples in this scan <laughs> that, um, you know, the standard one is you've like seen a bunch of complicated instructions involving a, nouns and verbs of various kinds. Uh, and then or I guess verbs and modifiers of various kinds. And then somebody says, by the way, there's a new verb jump uh, and jump maps to this sequence of actions on the output side. Um, but you never see jump in con conjunction with uh, uh, any more complicated sequence of actions. And then at test time, somebody says, okay, tell me what it means to jump three times. Um, mm -hmm. And current models just just cannot do this. Um, but you can come up with more naturalistic versions of these things. Uh, there have been some semantic parsing papers from, uh, from Google and from the University of Michigan uh, that say if you just like hold out um, a subset of question structures, you know, so that you know the model knows how to answer who directed um, such and such a movie and who acted in another movie directed by such and such a movie, but not um, what other movies did such and such a director also direct. Um, you again, you know, even if you've seen all the pieces before, can't generalize to new compositions of them. Uh, and this mm -hmm. is something that, that's very easy for people. Yeah, yeah, uh, I see. So we've been looking at both, um, I'm really into data augmentation these days as just like a relatively unstructured, flexible way to bake compositional biases or inductive biases generally into neural models where we don't know how to do it at the architectural level. Um, so I, I had some work that I did on my own on uh, like very simple rule-based data augmentation procedures uh, for compositional generalization that was at ACL this year. Um, some work with a student going on right now that has an even better version of that uh, with a learned model uh, actually doing the, um, the data augmentation as well. And, you know, this is something that like the vision community has been using for like coming up on a decade now as a way to bake in things like translation invariance or reflection invariance uh, that are really easy to write down, but like actually somewhat hard to bake into a convnet. Um, and I think mm -hmm. those kinds of techniques haven't gotten nearly enough attention in NLP as just like engineering solutions to, um, to this problem. But then there's also the deeper question of, um, like, what is this, you know, when we say there's a particular set of generalizations that, you know, we want you to generalize to, uh, complex sentences involving the word jump or complex web queries that you've never seen before. Um, why is that actually fair game? And like this thing that we're hand-wavily calling compositional generalization, 
um, can you actually formalize uh, what it is in a way that maybe makes it easier to bake into model structures or at least to just like reason about? I see. So, so it's still an open question or we maybe still haven't agreed on a formal definition of compositional gener- generalization. Yeah. Or, you know, more of the problem is that we've, uh, we've agreed on like 10 and people just, <laughs> you know, different communities use this word in different ways uh, sometimes without even realizing that that's going on. And that is a large source of the uh, um, uh, conflict that these kinds of questions uh, sometimes generate, especially in the context of like conversations between cognitive scientists and, uh, and computer scientists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this has been great, like going back and, and hearing the backstory of some of these works and then how they've kind of evolved. And then um, this like new direction that, that you're taking. I think the hardest question of, of these podcasts is usually about the advice. So coming up with a single piece of, of advice, but yeah, does anything come to mind like for maybe a new PhD student, um, something that comes to mind, some, some advice that you could give to them? Yeah. I mean, I think this is uh, fairly generic, but like read old papers, become an expert in mm-hmm. something that's not uh, really trendy right now. Uh, Cause those are the things that, in practice seem to wind up being the most useful, um, you know, as like a concrete research strategy for like the world that we live in right now. Um, something that has always worked relatively well as a like paper filtering or idea project idea filter for me is, um, you know, if whatever like particular neural network model I'm proposing to build as part of uh, part of this paper uh, could be replaced by some totally generic, you know, super transformer thing that's coming from three years right now, um, mm-hmm. is this still an interesting paper? Um, uh-huh. And if not, then it's probably not worth working on. Um, but that you know, one of the sort of exciting things about the time in which we find ourselves right now is that there's a large class of problems for which you basically do just have a like magical black box for turning X into Y for any value of X and any value of Y. Um, and the question then is just, so what do you do with this black box that you couldn't do before? Um, and I think, you know, at least with respect to like the policy sketches paper and the Neuralese paper, um, the learning with latent language paper, um, the actual architectural details don't matter at all. And the important questions are just like, how do you pose this learning problem? Or how do you learn from some new kind of supervision? Or how do you like build some sort of tool for turning X's into Y's if you don't actually have supervision for that specific pair? Um, And those papers you know, I guess with only a little bit of remove right now from my PhD uh, seem to hold up much better than uh, things that are really about like, let's hack some very specific neural net architecture for some very specific problem. Yeah, yeah. So build things that are invariant to changes in architecture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think that's a, a good place to end. And um, thanks, thanks for coming on the podcast and giving up your time and discussing these things. Yeah, no, this was super fun. Thank you.